0: does need flashcards. I think that's the best way.
1: Oh, no. Like one of the models from Price is Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, is that just across the board for medics, or is that just because of the mustache? It's got to be the mustache. It's probably is. it is. That's too good. Yeah. Well, and with that, welcome to The Washdown. I'm your host, Jeremy Green. With me is my co-host, Chris Nelson, and we have our producer, James Moran. Today we have a guest... Mr. Brian Paul, who is the president and founder of Veterans for Life.
3: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a privilege to be here, and with uh, fellow firefighters. And as, as you guys know, we all kind of speak the same language, and then uh, through many of the
0: similar experiences, and it's a, it's a special special brotherhood. Just sarcasm, the universal language that we both speak. <laughs> Even for sarcasm, exactly. <laughs> that, yeah. Sarcasm and caffeine.
2: So, Brian, won't you tell us a little bit about your story? Tell us about Veterans for Life and just kinda go from there.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So um uh, so uh well, tell you a little bit of background about me personally without the long drawn out life story. <laughs> uh so I was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, and lived there till I was about two, and uh, we uh, family moved up to Oklahoma, uh, and then uh, we settled down in Mustang, Oklahoma, which is just a suburb of Oklahoma City where I grew up, and I was like, uh, I grew up kind of out of town, so I was, you know, riding three-wheelers and fishing probably every third day, and, uh, hunting and playing football and basketball and uh then i went on to uh graduated there in 92 and went on to oklahoma city university and uh played a year of basketball there and joined a fraternity and did uh i packed a whole lot of stuff into college yeah and uh, it was the best eight years of my life <laughs> <laughs> the van wilder plan yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, me and a buddy were, it, and we were bored one summer, and there were, all the other college kids had left went home, and we were staying there in the fraternity house, and we decided we were, we were bored and we were going to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> and uh, we were on our way out of the driveway when uh, a guy named Mike Shinopoulos pulled up and he was a commanding officer there with the forty fifth infantry and he convinced us to join his unit because we were just there I wish I could say it was something patriotic or you know something you know something like that, but it was basically when we, we wanted to go blow stuff up and shoot <laughs> big guns. We were bored. Mm-hmm. So uh, we joined the infantry, went downrange to Fort Penning, Georgia. We went back to Fort Benning, Georgia. We went back again to Fort Benning, Georgia, where they trained all all the infantry for the United States Army. So not long after that, uh, it's when the 1995 Murrah Building was bombed, and that was a that was a crazy experience for really the whole city, because it's Oklahoma City. You know, it's we're not talking Paris or New York or something. It's just right there in the heartland. And, and that's what, kind of what they named it, was Chair in the Heartland. And so my, uh, my college was probably three miles away from the Murrah Building, uh, downtown Oakland City. And our armory was probably two miles away from the Murrah Building. So we were able to get our stuff, uh, get all our gear and get deployed pretty quick. And so we spent two weeks down there mainly doing security um, and setting up tents and some other things there at Ground Zero. So that was my first experience with uh, trauma type events. And so later went on, moved up, moved up to Kansas City, took a job with Roadway Express, where I was in the private sector for about four years, four and a half years. And then uh, we got bought out by Yellow Freight. And so I originally decided I wanted to join the, to get back in the Army and possibly go active duty. And so I decided that. Uh, I wanted to become a firefighter. So I learned through doing research and talking to friends that in order to become a firefighter, you also have to be EMS.
2: And I was like, ah, <laughs> uh, I'm yes. not the, related <laughs> to all that. <laughs> the double edged sword. Right. <laughs> Run into burning buildings and yeah, go lift up people. Right.
3: <laughs> so uh, I ended up getting through uh, EMT school and then the Fire Academy and then a uh, uh, Volunteered for two years and then later became career firefighter for a few years and uh, Started out my fire service career really doing really really well Uh, I was hired on full-time They had had two open positions out of about 860 applicants, so Really did well in all my evaluations and was doing well on calls Uh, And then um, my my journey success really took a turn and my drinking became extremely heavy and i always drank too much and even through college and stuff like most college kids but it turned into a full-blown addiction to alcohol where i just could not stop drinking and family and friends were super worried and and then so my performance at, at the the uh at our fire district really took a, a slide and it was a down, downward spiral that happened over the course of probably a year and uh, so I ended up uh, actually quitting the job and uh, becoming uh, divorced and homeless and uh, having suicidal thoughts and so that was my rock bottom and so through that experience uh, I went through a 90-day treatment program, and when I started that program, I was actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, which I had no idea, and I didn't even know what it was. I've heard people talk about it just briefly, but so 90 days uh, there in a place called the English Mountain Recovery in Tennessee, uh, where I went through equine-assisted therapy as well as talk therapy and a 12-step program. And I was able to come out the other side with a clear mind and uh, renewed spirituality faith in god and that really was what carried me through um, to uh, gave me the strength and comfort to start building what's now veterans for life and that story really began with me sitting on standing on the top of this mountain where english mountains actually the smoky mountains and I knew that there were, there had to have been many other people like me with all the same similar experiences, and uh, so I knew I had to take my experiences to somehow help the next person. I had no earthly idea how that was going to happen. I didn't know what a nonprofit was, uh, uh, but just through the grind, I uh, was able to. to uh, Start what's now a national network with two chapters, one being in Oklahoma City and the other one here in Kansas City. And uh, getting people connected to treatment that were, that are in the same shoes that I was once in. So I think uh, as, of, as of the end of 2020, I believe we've got about 70 connected in, in and through uh, treatment throughout our treatment departments around the U.S.
2: So so basically it's just, or no, it's just, but it's a resource to basically, you know, you hear somebody struggling or whatever and you're matching them up with treatment programs that you have some kind of relationship with. Yeah, there. yeah, that's, that's essentially what it is. So
3: yeah, it's just matching the, the person's issue up with the program. Okay. And... Uh, throughout the last four years, I've been able to make uh, basically just good friends and that, that run different programs, treatment partners, and get people, you know, connected. And, and I, you know, as I tell people, it's the, you know, widespread probably, you also have widespread support. And so it's it's merging those two
2: right together. And I think that's a very good point because I know whenever you, when you talk to people, you know, firefighters in general, and, you know, guys in the military, police officers, we all kind of have that same mentality of, you know, I got this or whatever, but whenever it gets down to the point where we might need some help, we don't really know which way to turn, because our culture is, suck it up, buttercup, you yeah. know, and yeah. so it's not, that's not talked about, so the resources aren't widely known in our community, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's so
3: you know there's a lot of veterans and first responders that struggle with the post-mac stress, the the substance abuse, uh, the depression, all those things that come with it. Um, so as I you know coach our team is how do we how do we get underneath that pride and We do that by removing that shame and guilt of someone who is used to going out and being the helper and now is the one that needs help. So we do that by removing the shame and guilt and replacing it with hope, inspiration, and understanding. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I like to share my story of recovery because um, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just like the two of you guys. Uh, but my story recovery has has been remarkable, and but it's something that everyone could do in in their own in meeting their own goals in life.
2: Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons that we started this podcast. Was you know we've both had our own stuff that we've gone through, which we've talked about a little bit, but I'm sure we'll go at least I will into more depth. But you know, it's there is a way out. There's a a path to recovery, and if you're committed to it, you know, the resources are out there, and you can take those steps. And if we can, by doing this podcast, if we can catch somebody who may see it, you know, and and they can recognize, oh, well, yeah, I kind of do that stuff too, or, you know, I've had those thoughts, or, you know, whatever, and they can recognize it early, maybe they don't go so far down.
3: That's that's just it, right there. yeah. yeah. So I, I got out of uh, got out English Mountain, uh, started the grind of building the uh, the organization Veterans Black USA. Started connecting with people. <clears throat> One of those people I connected with was an old college friend from OCU. And I hadn't seen him in 20-something years. And his, friend, his, his name's Brian Wharton. And he's in a local acting community there in Oklahoma. And for some, probably many people don't know that Oklahoma's become kind of a hotbed for uh movies. I had no
0: clue I about that. That. <laughs> yeah
3: it, it really has so one of the movies they were making at the time this was this was um two this was about three years ago uh Hollywood people came to Oklahoma and they started making the Turkey bowl and all these kind of big celebrities from Barry Switzer to matt jones uh uh, John Beasley, Antonio Smith from the Houston Texans Super Bowl with Elway. Mm-hmm. So Brian got me connected to this movie and because I was playing semi-pro football at the time. So I met kind of the, the mold, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so there I was, as one of the stories. There I was. <laughs> <laughs> there hanging out with all these guys for, for two days and... And uh, the movie got picked up by Lionsgate and we actually saw it, went and saw it in the theaters there in in, uh, Bricktown in Oklahoma and Barry Switzer was sitting on my left and my mom was sitting on my right (laughs) and uh, he asked me, Barry asked me if I wanted to come up and say a few words and this was a packed, this was a packed uh, theater and uh, can't really remember what I said to all these people, but <laughs> it was, apparently it was somewhat humorous because people got a <laughs> chuckle out of it. And, so That'd be cool, I'm not
2: gonna lie. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be.
3: Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I have to go back and look at pictures, That's some of the things I've done in my recovery, because I'd think, dude, are you, like schizophrenic?
2: Did that actually happen? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't hey, know, man. It, it actually happened. And, Good uh, things happen in bunches. Yeah. You know, and once you start the ball rolling.
3: Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what you can do when you when you don't have distractions, you know, it's like this is a goal that that I want to do and you don't have uh, you don't have a, you have a clear thinking head instead so when you're going through alcoholism and post-traumatic stress and you're having to fight that depression. It's like it's like kind of being knee deep in mud. And you don't really know what it's like until you get to the other side of those those kind of struggles. And you think, you know, hey, life is not not
0: nearly as hard as what it was. Yeah. What was it like, kind of, for you to break some of those habits that kept you functioning daily um, prior to going into treatment? So you, you know, almost the dark sense of humor, not necessarily the physical addiction, but just some of the mental habits that you. Portrayed to others of I'm fine or you know whatever or just the dark humor wh- however you carried yourself day to day to make yourself look good in public. How, how hard was it to break some of those mental habits to get that clarity of mind? Well, there
3: really wasn't much humor at the time. Um, it was it was my mother and I had my mom and two friends left, and because I had burnt lots of bridges like most addicts is what it was and my mom trying to convince me to go in to treatment and get help and me trying to convince my mom that hey i'm a firefighter i'm a college graduate i'm 11 bravo i'm a paratrooper and so she was getting nowhere so it took it took me literally my bone marrow not producing red blood cells bruising on my body and just a miracle that I survived. It took that rock bottom to get through my pride and ego to be able to actually have to turn the corner and then into treatment.
2: Yeah, I don't know what to yeah, say. I didn't expect to hear that. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a lot of <laughs> ego, Brian. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was it was a lot of ego. Yeah. So as part with the Veterans for Life, then, how are you breaking down that that ego wall, essentially, of guys that are built, I mean, just like you, with with the military and and us, police, whatever category you want to be put in? I mean, what what steps that were not what steps, but what have you guys done to help break that wall to get the help for people that you've helped so far?
3: Yeah, it's just the the hardest part about our mission by far is getting. Initially getting connected to those people that are struggling because we're basically we're basically search-and-rescue in shadows we're, we're trying to find You know the people that are struggling that oftentimes Hey, you know I'm good But so then when I when I do make connection with these with people who are struggling It's almost always time you have you have something relatable a Relatable part of your life that you can share together. So there's that bond that, that common bond and then I oftentimes don't introduce myself as president, and founder of Veterans Flight or a former sem- semi-professional football player, or hey, did you see me in this movie? I introduce myself as hey, my name's Brian, and I'm in recovery from addiction, to alcohol. So we want to lower, we want to get eye level with those people that are struggling, and so that they open up and as I call it, get down in the pit with them, and then talk with them, and hear their story, hear where they're at, and then as I'm talking with that person, I'm actually pre-qualifying them to a given treatment program. So I'm asking, hey man, do you have insurance? Or, uh, you know, where do you live? Or do you have people around you that support you? Or are people around you not supportive of you? So we're beginning, beginning that turnaround for people that are actually willing to go through. And then I like to share my story of recovery to let them know that, hey, regardless of where you're currently at, it's just a chapter in your life. And I had the ability to move past it. You got the ability to move past it. And, and on to meeting your goals and repairing relationships with your wife and kids and your,
0: your boss and so on and so forth. What have you found one of the hardest challenges to be with that? Is it an insurance thing, maybe a homelessness thing, a family support network thing? What's usually the biggest, most consistent hurdle to overcome? Right now, we've we developed enough pathways
3: forward. It, it's right now giving in enough hope and their their willingness to, to take those steps forward. Because, you know, the truth of the matter is we're, we're having people fall through the cracks that just... Just aren't willing to take those steps forward. You know, we got everything from Transformations Treatment Center in Delray Beach, Florida, which requires insurance, to Camp Hope down in uh, Houston, Texas. That's a six-month-long total total reset where they help find you a job before you leave and everything. And then there's state there's state-funded programs that for detox and then and then to the, the uh, you know, helping uh, with the uh, mental health and substance abuse. So there's all kinds of different options. We've got what's called a veteran navigator, where I simply t- text that person uh, the website. They plug in their zip code, and there's a list of resources right there in their zip code that pop up. And they don't always have exactly what the resource they need, but it's a it's a really good gap filler. So. Yeah, it's just it's just a matter of people that are willing to help themselves or willing to be helped.
2: Right. I mean, like you, the analogy you used of getting down with the pit. You know, getting down in the pit with them. You, know, you can show that person where the ladder is, but they have to climb out themselves. Yeah. 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 You can only provide so much help if they're not willing to. And I think that comes back to kind of Chris's question of. How do you get around that that ego, you know? Well, I know for me personally, I didn't have a problem. And it sounds like you didn't have a problem either. Right. Until you right. did have a problem. Yeah, that, that's somebody else. That's yeah. not yeah. me. Yeah, that's not me. Right. Yeah, take those glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> that's the hard part. Taking the glasses off,
1: that way you can see the reality of it, you know? Yeah. You watch a 3D movie and
3: everybody else is watching it live, and it's just not working. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's a good one. Uh, another one I like to use is... That is microphone
0: <laughs> microphone's killing me!
3: I'm trying to be productive! Sorry, now I'm a to change the line. Uh, it's, it's good. It's all good. <laughs> another, another analogy I like to use is... It, you guys ever sat in a in a room with like big windows and read a book where you're just using the natural light? Mm-hmm. And you're reading this book and you're into this thing and you're reading and reading. Well, the sun is slowly going down and you may not realize that hey what you're reading it's hard to read but you're just involved with this book and you guys ever have been in that situation where someone comes and flips on the light and they go (laughs) how are you reading and you're like god i don't know man thanks for trying that light uh it's like that it's like going on and and uh flipping on the light so someone can see clearly and, and then helping them and because a lot of times when we're struggling with with the depression and the addiction and stuff we think we're thinking straight but all our friends and family are going dude what are you doing here yep you know, the things you say you don't think
1: you're being offensive to somebody or being mean what in reality you are and then like I said you burn the bridges and Mm-hmm. It's hard to. It's really hard to come back once you've burnt those bridges too. Yeah. You know. I mean, just. I mean, yeah. personally, for you to, to, to fix your your mental health and your hat, break your bad habits.
0: Yeah. It's almost impossible without that support network. What was it like for you, kind of on the on the backside of the on the healing process of this? Some of those relationships you did hinder. You know going through your addiction, how, how do you even begin to repair those? That's a really good question. You know, to me, it's
3: the best thing I can do for my family and friends that care about me is move on and not drink and stay sober and help the next person and talk with people like my son and my mom and and, you know, keep, keep connected with them and let them know how things are going with me and and just, you know, just slowly, you know, rebuild those. That trust is the big thing that, hey, I'm doing well, and yes, I'll always be an addict. I'll always be an alcoholic, but because I know that, it keeps me from taking the first drink And, and then being a part of their lives and giving back into their lives and being supportive of them as they were. For me when i was struggling.
0: What would what would you say to the f- family members that are kind of struggling with that, that are almost ready to give up, ready to just kind of throw their hands up? What would you, looking back on, what would you say to them now to keep them in that fight with that individual? I would say to them that it's, it's um, try to
3: think of that person as still the person before the struggle with with the substance what what was that person like before they started taking that downward spiral and being a jerk and you know, and all the behavior that most alcoholics have you know we all have very similar behavior we hide bottles we lie we cheat sometimes we steal but think about that person before that and then hopefully that will help them realize that it's not the person it's that substance and the effect it's having on that person's brain. And um, again it's trying to be as helpful as you can and caring and compassionate as you can without being the enabler and that's where <laughs> that's where it gets a little tricky for a lot of people.
2: Yeah that's a that's a fine line that I don't think very many people really navigate very well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I know, yeah, I've been guilty of that in the past of, you know, having friends who I know are alcoholics. And, so, oh, you can just have one. No, no you can't.
3: <laughs> we, had, we had a brother, 45th Infantry Thunderbird. Um, uh, he left California, drove across the country to Tulsa where his friends were, where he actually served. And the Oklahoma Guard and so he was surrounded by very supportive people the problem was those people were a little too supportive <laughs> so apparently he was down at the gentleman bars you know every every yeah. other day for yeah. the week that I was advocating for him uh, so I told my contact there Leslie I said we need to cut that off because here's the deal would you want to go speak Begin your journey of recovery, never drink again for the rest of your life, spend six months in Houston, Texas when you've got friends giving you money to go to the local gentleman bars and, and be nice and comfortable at home, because I probably wouldn't. Yeah. I would probably milk that train as long as I possibly could when I was my active addiction. Yeah, yeah. I'd definitely milk that train.
2: yeah uh, <laughs> that's, that's something that we talked about the other day, about being comfortable. And, you know, it's real easy, you get comfortable, you want to stay there, and if anything is hard, why would I go do something hard, I'm I'm comfortable right here, I'm I'm good right here, Mm -hmm. for as long as it lasts, you know, but the bottom line is that if you're not doing stuff that's hard, that pushes you out of your comfort zone, and recovery is the same way, then you're never going to (coughs) grow. you have to do those hard things and yeah they may suck while you're doing them but they'll be the most rewarding things that you've ever done because they're going to lead you to the life that you actually want yeah exactly
3: yeah and you know i tell people it's like you know dude i know right now that you feel like you're looking at a mountain ahead of you You've tried to stop drinking. You've lost all your family and friends. You've got that depression. You feel like you're in a deep, dark pit. But look, instead of looking at the mountain, look at just one one step at a time. And after you've made that step, stop. And realize, hey, dude, you just took a big step forward. You need to recognize that. that <laughs> you are making progress you're going in the right direction and congratulate yourself even if it's people things that other people don't see it's a full self-honesty and knowing that hey hey I I went to an AA meeting today I didn't no one was watching no one would have known but I went and took that step for myself and then that what that does is build forward positive thinking and that gets us out of that that
2: hole of man I'm I'm screwed, yeah. Yeah. you know. You have to celebrate your victories. A victories. Yeah, yeah. during recovery and and I'm not talking about like the huge milestones of, oh, I've been sober for 180 days or you know whatever it may be. It's the, I've been sober for an hour. Exactly. Or I haven't yeah. done this, you know, it's, you celebrate your wins. You know, you're not going to be undefeated. <laughs> I mean you're going to lose at times, but it's, you celebrate those victories and like you said, it's one foot in front of the other and recognize whenever you have made those milestones and Absolutely. done the little things. Because Absolutely. Because you do a lot of little things, that adds up to the big thing in the end.
3: 365 days a year, there's 365 <laughs> opportunities to win exactly. in one year.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. At least that's the way that I like to think about it. And so, well, it's just like anything else, anything you do in life,
1: you got to set the small goals. Yeah. You know, look, you play football. I played high school football and basketball, and we all sure we all play baseball at some point. It's not, you know, you have your goal list, but it's, you know, win win the first game. You know, I had a football coach. This thing was every week. We wanna know. That was the goal. One to mm-hmm. and then. No, we never talked about winning the state championships or winning the conference. Be one to zero every week, and it worked. I mean, we won state my sophomore year. The so, well, well,
2: and I think that's a good. That's just a good life lesson.
1: But that's how, and that's what I've taken it with me. Yeah. Ever since.
2: Because if that you...
1: Hayes in the barn, boys.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> that one of
1: my favorite ones too. Hay's in the barn. <laughs> Old
2: country coach. <laughs> if you look at, you know, like you said you look at that mountain it's real easy for people to get overwhelmed by looking at the all of the work that has to be done you break it down into small goals and then before you know it you're looking back and going, wow I'm I'm halfway up this mountain wow I'm three-quarters of the way up this mountain you know and if you break that down into your everyday life you know of man I got so much to do today I got to do the laundry I got to do this I got to do that okay Prioritize, prioritize your tasks. What's the first thing? Just do the first thing. Make your bed. Yeah. And then you move on to your second thing, and then your third thing, and before you know it, you're done with everything you have to do. You know? I'm interested
0: a little bit about your schedule when you talk about going to college. I've played sports in college too, so I know how rigorous that schedule can be. It's my, my guess would be it's almost somewhat like the military every day, most of the day your schedule is laid out for you, you go where you go, you shit when they tell you to shit, you know, it's all, it's all scheduled for you. You know, and then you talked a little bit about your career, even after the military, everything was structured, there was a goal, you wanted to be a firefighter, there was always EMT school, there was a fire academy, and then you got to that point where you find yourself only working nine or ten days a month, and it probably for the first time in your life, you had a chance to be, not stagnant, but just relax. There there wasn't a next step, next step, next step, next step. Would you say or did you notice an increase? Or or would that be your downhill spiral when you notice you truly did have more time for your thoughts? I think that would be part of it. Yeah,
3: yeah. Like I say, you know, I it always drank a little bit too much, you know, for since my mid twenties, early twenties. But yeah, when you leave when you when you get off shift, if if I were, if I were to have a say, a lawn care business, or uh, a stronger, uh, more involved with the church, or getting out doing healthy things, uh, softball or flag football or something like that, I think that the lifestyle with that that time gap, those days off, yeah, that's what I tell people is, hey, lots of people. Have long, healthy, wonderful fire careers, and the best way to do that is have those outlets outside the fire service where you have your tr- your strong faith, your, your church family, you're doing kid things with your kids, you're going to ball games to keep you from sitting at home and dwelling on, hey, you yeah, know we lost that eight month old you know did you see you, you know you know? And, and thinking about all those things thinking about the Oklahoma City bombing you know thinking about um, losing friends we lost a, we lost a, one of our firefighters to suicide there when I was on when I was uh, on a career and so yeah so taking advantage of that time and doing healthy things because what I describe post max stress as is it's like it's like you have a lot of trash you're putting in a trash compactor and so that that trash bag can only take so much trash in it before it's called you guys know the term blevy mm-hmm. <laughs> and before it blevies and it you know and it's and that's when you start having some major problems especially when you pour alcohol into that so if you have a healthy outlets, you get that stuff out you're out doing physical exercise, you got a strong faith, you got a good church family, then that's what creates that longevity in, in jobs like the fire service where you you know, have
0: to deal with people's problems as a career. With your organization, would you say that you're still working on or have you got those resources to, not necessarily somebody needs to go to treatment or it has to be in depth, but just providing those kind of light like outlets to help steer away from going any deeper down that path. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have
3: three. We have three different aspects of our mission. So providing connection to our to our treatment partners is just one of those aspects. The other two aspects are providing support and also purpose. So we have, for instance, we have a we have a fundraiser that we're doing in conjunction with Horses and Heroes Inc. here in Kansas City. Uh, where we're raising funds, and it's going to be a a a 100-hole golf tournament, or marathon. And we're also going to do uh, things there uh, that day, like cornhole tournaments, car shows. Um, I believe we're going to do a uh, poker run with motorcycles. So those those are opportunities for people to step forward and take leadership role and find their purpose and, and have that, have that um, mindset centered on something productive and you know, leadership opportunities versus getting off track on maybe some other things that aren't as healthy.
0: You, you brought up a good point, point. I want you to kind of elaborate to the listeners. Help them explain, or help explain to them purpose. We get it because we do it, but for some of those guys that, buy-in, as we all should, into our military career, our law enforcement career, our fire career. It, it does become our identity. We are helpers. We have a purpose. Help our listeners kind of understand what it's like when that is gone and the struggle, even without addiction, to kind of cope and wrap your brain around that. Yeah, so so for our
3: military people, I was, I was one of those people. Um, when When you are serving in the military... As you were saying, you know, there's, there's structure, it's usually from early in the morning with PT or, and then on to training then you've got lunch and you've got more training and then you've got uh, formation and then you've got stuff throughout the day where you're told hey this is where you need to be at this time and that's how your lifestyle is and oftentimes people would identify themselves with rank. I'm Sergeant uh, Paul or I'm you know Specialist Paul or Lieutenant Paul. And so then there are some programs that help guide our military people out of the service and and reintegrating into civilian life with job opportunities, so on and so forth. But when you get out of the military or out of the fire service, that structure is now gone, and a lot of people leave themselves wondering, "Who, who am I? What's my why? what am i supposed to be doing like you know what what's my purpose so there are a lot of different vso's around the country we partner with quite a few of them that offer that purpose and that structure and that camaraderie and and help people help guide people onto things like jobs and through you know connections and, and things like that where it's it's not you're not just being dropped out of military fire service but now you have a fire service family and when that's gone well you still have a family of of camaraderie people all serving with purpose for the community so that sure helps and it's be honest with you it's it's really helped me in my my journey of recovery because i I think without without veterans flight i'm not i'm not sure that i would still be Silver.
2: Well, that's part of having a purpose and a mission. Right. And you know, I've talked to a lot of guys where and that seems to be if not a huge part of the problem, part of the problem mm-hmm. with and they bring it up all the time is I'm just sitting at home. I don't you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or I don't know where I'm supposed to go or whatever. And it's like you need a new mission. You know, you've been doing this one thing for 20 plus years, and now you're not doing that thing anymore. You have to find something else. And it it could be anything for, you know, each individual. I mean, there's a million things out there to do. It's just you got to find that one thing. And part of that is just trying stuff. Yeah. You know? Get out and... Yeah, get out. Live life. Mm-hmm. And I saw your face whenever he was talking about the poker run. You're already out, your bike's gonna be in the shop. That's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> Still <is totally> out. <laughs> <laughs> if I thought
3: I'd hear something this week, I guess not. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll do that. I've got a buddy here locally in Kansas City, he's he's in the 75th Rangers and he he uh, he's big into motorcycles and does uh, different motorcycle groups, so he called he's like, Hey man, do you Mind if I do like a poker round with it, with the, in conjunction with the hundred holes for the twenty-two? Um, he's like, I'll do, I'll do everything. I just need you to tell me what, you know, the details and what if, hey, that's going to work out. I'm like, yeah,
2: go for it. So I wonder if it's the same buddy that I have. <laughs> we'll
3: talk about that later. Could be.
2: So, Brian, tell us what's the significance of the hundred for the twenty-two.
3: Okay, so the 100 for the 22 is uh, it is four, uh, a team of four golfers, and they, uh, one of them is our executive director, J.C. Carmill. He's a mm-hmm. professional golfer, and uh, so they do they 100 do hole marathons straight through without using carts or any of that kind of stuff to, to aid them to do these 100 holes. <laughs> And I've seen it uh, when J.C. did it before in, in OKC, and um, so they um, they do these holes because they J.C. had never served before. He had family and things that had served in the army, and it's just out of gratitude for the hardships that our military goes through and in, in first responders. And so they do 100 holes, and and uh, we raise hopefully lots of money for. Veterans Fight USA and Horses and Heroes Inc. so that we can better help people and uh, and also it's I think with every event we do it's yes it's a fundraiser absolutely we need to raise money <coughs> but it's more of uh, it's, it's as much making personal connections with the community and like-minded people and that helps us continue to grow and with volunteers and supporters and people that are like-minded. and. And and also draw awareness to our mission and what we're doing and what we're all about as well.
2: So what's the significance of the numbers? I guess?
3: Oh, 100. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. I like, I like his answer better than it, the question. No, it was yeah, that's, that's a, a, a great answer. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to lie.
1: I, I, just, I can't go over the 100 hole part it's straight yeah. through.
2: Yeah, I play 18 and I'm wiped out for a week. Yeah, and I use a card. Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually play like four and my friends tell me to go home because I'm bad. I don't think I
0: can afford the golf balls for 100 holes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's be honest here.
3: Uh, so 100 holes for the 22, it's, uh, it's, it's drawing awareness and, and supporting, uh, it's being supportive of the, the 22 veterans that take their lives on average every day in the U.S. and uh, I actually believe that number is actually really small. Uh, smaller than what it actually is and uh, I try not to get too back and forth with people on what the exact number is but and then also the 35 first responders that take their lives every day as well so that's that's the uh, that's the goal is to draw awareness draw connection and raise funds
2: yeah yeah I was reading uh, out and Nelson i talked about this before um, Last year, whenever we were doing kind of research for the podcast, we were kind of going over the whole, you know, how many first responders commit suicide and all of that. And I read a paper that said it was, what was it, 300 and something? Yeah, it's like an average of 300. Average of 300 and something a a year, but they actually expect that number to be as much as twice because of the way that it's reported and that, you know, it kind of gets covered up a little bit sometimes, mm-hmm. so, yeah. I mean, it's a real problem. That's a pretty good paper, too, that yeah. the white paper. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real problem, and people need to be made aware of it, and people in the fire service, people in the military, people in law enforcement, we all need to be aware of that and cognizant of it, you know, and it's true, we are our brother's keepers. So, we got to keep an eye on each other and watch for the signs. I and mean, keep an eye on yourself. Mhm. You know, cuz it does happen.
3: Yeah, with the with the uh when you're talking about the suicide rate, just the number it like I say it's it's and I don't mean this to I don't mean this any other way than what it is. It's just a number. Mm-hmm. Because they don't take into account the overdoses. They don't take into account the accidents from from self-medication. Uh, and the uh, that 22 number, you know, I've got the email from the VA, but that was a that was a VA study that was done in I believe I believe it was like 2012 uh, or 2014, one of the two. But that was a study that was done over. That was a study done just on the active duty component. So many people don't know there's active duty component, which is the smallest number-wise, personnel-wise, in the military. Then you've got your reserve, which is much bigger. Yeah. And you've got your National Guard, which is much bigger. So to take that city just off people active duty, and they came up 20 to 22 or something, you know, like that. Sometimes you'll hear 19, and but...
2: It depends on which study it, you look it depends. at. Yeah. As long
0: as that number is more than one, that's how we still have an uphill battle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it, it's just a, the frustrating
3: thing is, is people like myself and many other advocates, friends of mine, you know, live in different parts of the country that that have these resources and you know all these different pathways forward. It's like, dude, I can't help you if I don't know. You know, and so I reach out, share my story on social media and other platforms, television, national radio, all that stuff. So that I feel like you know, if we if we get our if we get our stories out there enough, where people will, will you know, hopefully know, hey, this, this guy's been through the similar you know similar struggle. This guy, you know, gets it. So, but that's that's just the frustrating part. It's just getting connected with those people who are struggling. Because after that, there's you know, there's all kinds of different options. It just takes a person that's willing.
0: Wow. And, and you made a good point earlier, like we're being in the shadows, because it's a lot of times we do seclude ourselves. So you know, now it's not just a normal search and rescue mission. It's you got to go dig deep to find the ones that may need the most help because they're. They're not advertising on social media. They're not coming out to social events. They're not looking for someone to help them. They are dug in deep, and you gotta go looking for them. And that's
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. That's why we've got we've got
3: some really good leadership on board with the with Veterans 5, where they're able to uh, coordinate the I don't know, coordinate most most everything. pretty much. It's <laughs> kind of awkward. It's kind of like. Hey, Brian, go go, go over here. Yeah. Just, go, go sit in the corner. Don't man. touch, it. Don't touch us. it. Sit in the corner until we need somebody to talk. Don't, don't then push then, that button. Hey, well, welcome <laughs> to my life now. I think yeah, like that's going kind to of suck. I going to bring him around.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's what we need to have. I'll tell you what, whenever we get some more cameras and a better table, then we'll bring you back on camera. How about that? I think we're
1: doing the viewers a favor.
2: Well, we still got you on camera. So. I know. I, that's all you need. I mean, one's enough. <laughs> So, but,
3: but by having that leadership on board and uh, it, it frees me up to be able to like you said, you know do a little searching or, and reconnecting with people that you you know that spoke with maybe six months or a year ago and, and uh, because that's what takes is that concentrated effort and on each on each person versus a talk and then say, hey, you know I really want to refer you to this, to this program this is how it works, I'm going to get you connected to this, to the client service rep." But oftentimes that's not enough to, to let them out of where they're at, so it takes reconnection, 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 checking up, how are you doing, and being there for that one individual. So it's, it can be pretty, um, pretty demanding stuff, but we are making
2: an impact. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Go back to what you kind of just said about, or we're talking about leadership. Do you think that, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question, do you think leadership in the military, fire service, law enforcement, do you think they take this problem seriously enough? I mean, I know there's constraints with budget and you know, there's a there's a whole host of issues, right, but is there something we could do that's a little bit, I mean, obviously we need a culture shift to kind of take the stigma off of, hey, you know, if you need help, go get help, and it's all good. That's kind of... Uh, honestly,
3: to answer your question, the answer is mm-hmm. no. It, they don't. And, and that's one of the reasons why we have such a big problem, because I think, you know, it's not a knock on on you know, our, our chiefs or our company commanders, it's just that uh, it doesn't seem to be a priority until it happens in their unit, and then it's like, oh, holy shit, what happened? Right. Because I do, and I do, I do some public speaking, I'm going to do actually more this year. Uh, but, you know, I asked, the, I asked the, uh, the audience, how many of you guys in this room have had a friend or loved one that's committed suicide? Nearly everybody in the room raised their hand. If not, everybody in the room has a loved one that's committed suicide. And I said, keep your hands up. If that, the loss of that loved one due to ending their own life if you if it came to a total shock to you, or you had no idea it was coming. And almost every single hand stays up. That's that's because we don't we don't think it's going to happen in, in with our family or friends or our unit or our our shift on our in our station until it does. Mm-hmm. But I think um, more like you said, the kind of stigma and the. the totally going against the grain that the fire services had since grandpa's grandpa since they pulled since they pulled pumpers with horses. <laughs> you know, and uh the the macho mentality, which I think to your, your degree you you have to have kind of a you have to have a little bit of macho behind you, like you know, get your boots on, let's go. Let's go do this thing. Oh, know? absolutely. You you have to. But but at the same time, I think from leadership, if, if they actually, when, when you do have a critical instance stress team on paper, that that critical instance stress team is actually doing their jobs and actually going out talking with shifts after a critical call. Right. Instead of like like uh, going around the, the, you know, the table in the day room and saying, hey, is everybody okay? Good. Okay, good. Good night. Yeah. See you tomorrow. See you, see you when the clean trucks in the morning.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing of, you know, it's that culture. Mhm. You know. It, and I was talking um, with Rachel about this a little bit. And she was telling me about, you know, mostly whenever you get guys and girls or whoever is in the fire service, um they found that the whole group thing, like you know the kitchen table talk or whatever, people are not in critical incident debriefings. People don't want to speak up. It's the whole, I'm not going to say anything because he's not saying anything Mm -hmm. because he's not saying anything. Nobody wants to be that first one to take the lead. Right. They found the one on one is way more effective. Yeah, Um, I can see that. Because if I I go talk to to Moran,
1: I know you two aren't going to find out about it, and your opinion opinion isn't going to change of
3: me.
2: Right. Which, and and ultimately, that's not something that you should have to worry about anyway. You know, whenever it comes (laughs) down to your mental health, and like we were talking about earlier, that stigma, I mean, we need to get it through our thick heads that it, it doesn't matter. That... Being able to get the help that we need so we can continue to be fit for duty. And that's ultimately what it boils down to is look at it as a team. We'll say football because you're both football guys. Your quarterback has a broken throwing arm. You're not going to put him in the game to play quarterback. You're going to set him, he's going to get better, heal, then he can come back in and play. It's, it's the same great, thing. It's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. Yep. it's... It, PTS, specifically, is an injury and that's the way that we need to start looking at it and it has no bearing on you're a weak person or this or that. Stress and trauma affect everyone totally differently. We could all three see the same thing, and Moran too, we can all see the same incident and it will affect us in four different ways. You may be fine with it, and it wouldn't bother you. You might be a blubber and mess. Who knows? It doesn't make you less of a person or more of a person or whatever. It's just that trauma event affected you differently. Okay, you need to go talk to somebody, or you need to go do EMDR or neurofeedback or whatever. Let's get you the help. And then, hey, you ready to come back to duty? Let's go. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, um... I want to talk a little bit about because that leads up an exact point I probably I may have forgot about. Um, I'm a firefighter and I've been through traumatic call. I'm going home. I'm self medicating. I'm going down that downward that downward spiral. So how do I go and go about getting help? What I want to encourage people to do is is first identifying that you need help. And there's absolutely like Jeremy, like what you were just saying. It, it's a, it's the human brain. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the fact that you're any lesser of a firefighter or a cop or a paratrooper or a marine or whoever it is we're talking about. It's it's just how the human brain works. No one signs up for it right? You don't know, raise your hand and say, hey. <laughs>
2: give, me that, that give me that one. I like jump. the one that's a little broken. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: That sounds good. So, so how, do we, how do we go about what, what's the next step forward? The next step forward is going to your HR person and telling them the three magic words. I need help. I need this to make, remain confidential. At that point, your HR person, by law, Not share that with your shift. They can't share that with your captain or any of that HR person, whether it be your administrative lady in the front front office, or if there is some sort of HR department, like with a bigger uh, police or fire service. uh, That person, by law, cannot disclose your your mental health status and the things that you share with them. And then it's a fact. If from there, if it's if it's in-house patient, if it's in-house therapy that's needed, like say like transformations, where that person would have to be off work for the 30, depending on the insurance, anywhere between 35 and 45 days, then that's where the FMLA comes into play. So if you've been at your station for 12 months or longer, you should qualify for FMLA. And uh, and then insurance will take a big uh, part of that that cost away from the person that's struggling.
2: Yeah, there are definitely avenues for help. It's we gotta take your pride, put it in your pocket. You know, you can bring it out later, but <laughs> you know, get the help that you need and. You know, like you say, HR. There's also there's peer support teams that departments have that do the same thing. You know, um, EP or EAP. You know, that's another option for depending on you know your specific department or whatever. All, and that's the thing. Like all of these police departments, fire departments, the military, they all have routes for people to take to improve their mental health if they're dealing with something you know or whatever a lot of people just either don't know initially don't care to find out or whatever it's like we go back to earlier taking that first step so do a little bit of research or tell somebody you know ask a friend who you trust hey i'm struggling i need some help what do i do i got you i'll find out or this is the number that you call, or this is the person you talk to. Yeah. That, that's the biggest thing is
3: just, like you said, tell someone. Yeah. Absolutely. A trusted friend. Yeah. You know, maybe, that may be the, the guy that you're working with on the med unit, you know, or someone that you have, you know, close friends with that works on your shift, or it could be outside of your outside of your department or district, you know, but tell someone.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Don't just suffer in silence which is what a lot of us do, and then don't realize that it's not really silence that we're suffering in because we're making everybody else suffer around us. Mm-hmm. You know? And, you know, I'm sure you experienced it. What was the last thing to suffer during your alcoholism? It was the job, right? I mean, home life sucked. All of that stuff. So everything else can go to crap. I'm going to show up for work. And then once that's gone too... Now I have a problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, brother, I will say you
0: are welcome back. Absolutely, any time. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think we could go
1: another hour on this alone and learn more. Yeah. more and
3: yeah.
1: I mean, it sounds like you, Veterans for Life, has their ducks in a row, and you guys are doing great things and and really helping a lot of people. And hopefully, it grows even bigger than what it is now. Yeah. But, you know, the more work you get, the better. I mean, unfortunately, you yeah. know what I mean, I don't I don't want to see good people hurt, but yeah, right. Absolutely. the more work you do, the more people you're helping.
2: Well, you know, the goal with, I don't want to speak for you, put words in your mouth, but I would think that the goal for an organization like yours would be to not be needed. <laughs> to work yourself right out of business, right? That, that would be nice, <laughs> Yeah. we did a few things right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, you guys are doing a lot of right stuff, so... And, uh, I appreciate uh, you. Yeah, so I appreciate problem. it. It's
3: uh, when when people show me appreciation. It's it's uh, I like to remind people that yes, I'm the president and founder, but so many people throughout the last four years contributed, and so much effort has gone into it. And that's our motto: is "Stronger Together." And that applies in so many different ways, with people supporting and volunteers. advocate to the person that's struggling. Um, So many different ways. And so uh, when people show appreciation, I I just like, from my heart, I appreciate it because it's been a grind and we'll never be there wherever there is. And uh, so I appreciate it.
1: But let us know when you do some stuff too because, I mean, I'm not a golfer, but. I'll watch <laughs> <laughs> I have a great time I'm just got off way of but <laughs> <laughs> or you know, a, cor- the Cornell t- tournaments and then one the, of the poker runs
3: the you know, whatever we can do to, to help further the, the call. Abs- absolutely love that uh, the hundred for the twenty two is in uh, at Eagle Landing Golf and Country Club April the 26th in Bowton Missouri and so come on out we'll get a, we'll put uh, uh, some more stuff out on social media as well as uh, probably I'm sure if you use some television and radio and all that kind of stuff so. We'll definitely share
0: those links on
2: our Facebook page and as well. Yeah, but those be great. Yeah, much appreciated. Just send them to me, I'll put them in the description of the video. So cool. They'll be all over YouTube. Cool. Sounds good. Tens of viewers watching it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he went double digits. <laughs> you already used that joke. So. All right, story's true. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for stopping by. Um, you know, if you need help, reach out. So you're not alone, and there is always a way forward. So see you next time.